you probably have seen apocalyptic type movies where the imagination is played upon by the presentation of some past civilization or even the United States of America uh, and what it would look like if it was suddenly swept away and gone. I remember that one scene. I've never seen the entire movie, but that one, there's one scene in Planet of the Apes. You remember where you see the, the Statue of Liberty and there's all this sand and around it and it's, well, it's quite telling. I mean, it's telling you this once a civilization, now it's gone, that kind of thing. What we've given here in the book of Nahum is that we've got something that's not just imagination. It has happened. And it is here for us to read and to profit by. So let me say a couple of three things. And um, I think the best thing to do is just read it first because that, that's uh, – there's – there's 19 verses and there will be a little few comments. So I, I need to, this will help us to grease the wheels. And so let's, let's get into the chapter. So you're with me there. I'm going to read and give you a little comment or two along the way. And if you have a study Bible, you get some of those comments on there. I was, uh, I, from time to time, I've been critical of the uh, English Standard Version study Bible. And But I'll tell you, I read through all the notes this afternoon on Nahum, and really quite helpful. You know, if you, if you access study Bibles and read, read your Bible first and access notes, you can give yourself pretty good education in Scripture. All right? You there now? Nahum. All right, what we have thus far is we have a chapter one, which has given us a background, a lead up, sort of the visitor center for the book. Here's what's going on. We get a big, a picture of God, how big he is. And therefore, this is the, there is a, uh, the human responsibility before a holy God. And then in chapter two, we can begin to see, hear the war drums. The war drums are the drums that God beats in coming after a nation, which was an empire, which was brought down, I was going to say to its knees, but it was just absolutely decimated. Now with this third chapter, what we're going to get here is a picture of the reasons for this judgment on the grand great Assyrian Empire in the 7th century B.C. Here are the reasons given. All right. Woe, he says. Woe. That means uh, that that Hebrew word there is hot. Hot! And it's grief. It's death. And watch, watch. Woe to the bloody city. Completely full of lies and pillage, plunder. Her prey never departs. The noise or the crack of the whip. The noise of the rambling of the wheel. Galloping horses and bounding chariots. Well, this is not, I mean, it's not easy to miss um, that he is saying that there's this violent city, which it's built its empire on violence, a predator nation, and it's going to experience violence. That's the way it's going to be judged. Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, and heaps of corpses Countless dead bodies. 
They stumble over the dead bodies. Uh, we would say poetic justice is what is being described here. It's like none of his own tactics against her enemies. I've got plenty of historical evidence here. I like to refer to Will and R.L. Durant's uh, uh, history set, and I've got examples, but um, I may or may not use it. I've got to watch my clock, but I can guarantee you it was a b- bloody, bloody judgment because they had bloodied and murdered and raped and just ravaged the the. The Near East, at least as it was defined at that time. And he says, then, they countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. And because all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries, she had just lusted for power. More, 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 more to be conquered. More wealth to be acquired. And families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. So the Assyrians, they had, you know, the Assyrians, they had hundreds of incantations that they used. It's a very superstition-based kind of culture. They used uh, what we would say like, you know, reading the tea leaves or necromancy or um, you may remember that one point when uh, was it Sennacherib was trying to. No, no, no. That was getting uh, uh, Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar mixed up. But they anyway, they they made a drop the arrows and whichever the way the arrows fell, they would take that road. I think that was Babylon's. Forget that one. All right. But they did this kind of thing. Just. Reading the tea leaves, and I will lift up your, I will lift up your skirts over your face. Um, that is some uh, very gentle language describing the degree of um, rape that would be experienced by the Ninevites because of what she had done, and show to the nations your nakedness. And to the kingdoms, your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and it's human excrement. And make you vile. Set you up as a spectacle. And, and it will come about that all who see you will shrink away from you. And say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for her? She's no longer attractive. No longer attractive. It's the way it is. Powerful, wealthy nations and others gravitate in that direction. The wealth builds, but she falls. Are you no better than No Amon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile? Now, what is described here at this point is the invasion of a city in the Upper Nile, named Thebes, T-H-E-B-E-S. And Assyria attacked this city. Now, this is like 400 miles down the Nile River from the Mediterranean. And Assyria, it's a, it's a, it's a famous kind of battle and invasion. You can find it in the history books. And Thebes 
they had alliances with other nations to the west and to the south, like modern day Ethiopia, some say maybe even out as far as what is today Libya. So they had alliances that they counted on to protect them. I've been there. I went to Thebes. That's where the great uh, temple of, that's Luxor, Karnak, and nothing to do with Johnny Carson, um, but uh, Karnak. And this was the place, oh, it's, oh, you just, you run from one site to the, if you like ruin, I love ruins. Um, and uh, you, you see what a mighty civilization it was, but at the very heart and soul of it was just this pervasive idolatry. It worshipped anything that moved. And what he's describing here is the Assyrians coming in and invading and destroying and taking down Thebes. And a little something else. This will help the speed up the reading when I get to it. That they had a network of channels and because it was right. The Nile River at that point is about uh, half a mile wide. So they had created these channels and waterways as a system of fortification to impede any army that would come against them. And it, it, it would have looked as fortresses and defense systems existed at that time. It would have looked like a pretty a formidable kind of defense, maybe comparable to saying, well, we have nuclear weapons. It was something like that, that kind of weapon, they thought. So here's the description. And now you say, well, why is he putting this here? Hold on, you'll see. All right, here he describes it, and which was situated by the waters of the Nile with water surrounding her, moats, you know, canals, water channels, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea. Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Put, Lubim, were among her helpers. See, these were those coalitions, those alliances, that agreements that she had. She were attacked, it was kind of like NATO, that sort of thing. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also, also, her small children were dashed to pieces. So in spite of her geographical and political defenses, advantages, it all comes down in a horrific way. At the head of every street, they cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. Terrible atrocities that were committed. But what they did is they took to... They took the, cap- the captives, they didn't kill all of them, and they would have had kind of like a raffle, uh, who was the highest bidder, the Assyrian army, and on, hey, I would like, this man is a silversmith, this man, he works uh, in, with tools, and he's smart, or maybe navigation, or whatever skill, whatever knowledge they had. I want that one. I'll be, and I'll take the highest bidder. You know, it's a big slave market. That's what he's describing. What a humbling experience for a people to have to go through who had been one so high and mighty. All right. Now, here's the, here's the key. This is why he brings it up. You. See verse 11? You. Who is the you? Assyria. So it's like, Assyria? I just gave you a little history lesson. And about 40 years later, that was 663 when that invasion of Thebes took place. And now, you know, the fall of Nineveh in 612. So he's describing, and now you too will become drunk. Uh, you're going to be, you know, to, to, to 
a, a drunk person, I mean, somebody who's staggering drunk, you know, I mean, you can knock him down, push him over, a lot more vulnerable. That's why he's using that word picture. You will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. I like to think that that word refuge was designed here as a reminder, uh, oh, Israel or anyone, you know, you're better to seek God as your refuge. Don't miss that. So he then goes further to say that, so you will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees and ripe fruit. Our defense efforts were, were useless. We were like when we were kids, when we had a, we had a, we had a fort. You know, boys, we liked to play war all the time, some version of it. And I remember this one place we lived, we had this, uh, it was an old chicken coop. And we fixed it up. Whoa, we thought we really had a great fort. We put ramparts uh, from uh, one corner to the other. And yes, it was a great defense system. Really a great defense system. Oh, really? <laughs> a chicken coop? He's describing that your defense system your vaulted defense system, your armies, your muscular warriors, your chariots, your swordsmen, your spearmen, all of those great walls and towers, all of your history, your, your great victories in battle. Oh, really? All your fortifications are ripe figs, ripe fig trees and ripe fruit shake and they'll fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst, afraid, defenseless. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. There have been archaeological excavations. You know, interestingly, ancient Nineveh was not really discovered until 1842. It just got, talk about the, the Statue of Liberty in the sand. So Nineveh was completely covered for centuries. And people didn't, where was it? It was here somewhere. And 1842, well, so he describes what happens. And so, therefore, the gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. The fire consumes your gate. And they have discovered the evidence of fire in those ruins, what I was trying to get to. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Uh, Use a little bit of sarcasm here. Come on, try it. See if that works for you. You see what happened to Thebes? You see what happened to them? They thought they had it all made. But look, look, draw for yourself water for the seed. Strengthen your fortifications. The irony used here. (laughs) Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. He's saying, come on, come on. Get your bricks. Come on, get the clay. Put them in the kiln. Get them fired up. Get your bricks. Do your repairs. Come on. It's a taunt. It's a taunt. It's not going to do any good. The fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. They're going to be, there's going to be such mass extermination of the Ninevites. It's just going to be incredible. Multiply yourself like the creeping locusts. Multiply yourself like the swarming locusts. Using some sarcasm here. It's not going to, they're going to be decimated, decimated. You have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. All their wealth. Not going to do a bit of good. 
Not going to help them in the least. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers settling in the stone walls on a cold day. The sun rises and they flee. And the place where they are is not known. That's, I got a little ahead of myself. That's, that's what happened to ancient Nineveh. It just got buried under the sand of the ages. And uh, so it is. So the guards and the officials, they're all going to be afraid. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's running. Your shepherds are, are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains. And there is no one to regather them. There is no relief uh, for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. Let's hear an applause, please. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? Wow. I mean, the Lord doesn't spare any words through his prophet Nahum in saying, this is your future. All right, let's get the setting here. Move along. I, my punchline in this, I'm trying to hurry to get to the conclusion, so let's, uh, well, let's speed it up. God holds the nations of the world accountable to him. God does not recognize the separation of church and state. It's like the church. Well, okay, I qualify. Is the church held to a higher standard than the nation? Yes. But does the nation get off scot-free? Any nation? You'll say, we're secular. We can, we can do what we wish. We can create our own moral law. We have, we can, we'll get God out of the picture. Uh, <laughs> you can do that. You just, you're playing games with yourself. God executes his judgment on nations by means of more powerful nations. Nations will come down. What was it that I said? Assyria worked for about 271 years. She was the, the bully on the block of nations and what are we, United States of America, we go back to 1776, 240-something years. Oh, who do we think we are? Does the God of the universe hold the nations of this world to any kind of moral standard? What if the sages of this age deny that there is a God and that morality and justice are what we humans determine them to be? This is simply whistling in the wind. The psalmist said it this way. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. My, what is it like when God laughs? Whoa. The once mighty empire of Assyria is an example of the way in which God Almighty holds the nations accountable to him. Now, what I have before you here at this point is that uh, I have found this book to be really helpful, written by an, an observant, uh, he's, he's Jewish, this is not a Christian book, but this man has a lot of moral discernment. Dennis Prager, I've referred to you before. This is an excellent book. Um, he's still the best hope. If he would just I pray for him, that he'd see Jesus as his Messiah. He's around evangelicals a lot. But here's an interesting description here, and I have lifted the categories and to the question is, what are the consequences of secularism and leftism? That is, what are the consequences of a world and life view, understanding the way the world works and a value system that exists, which is pervasive in the West? I mean, almost the entire world. 
in some sense, but especially in Western civilization, as secularism is just gradually dominating, defining every aspect of life. And secularism is the erasure of God, removal of God's moral law. And I have these five, and I'll just, I'm just going to step through them quickly. I won't, I won't linger on them, but there, it's instructive. He's got a good chapter on it. I recommend it. Recommend you read it. First of all, what do we get? No God? No God? Is that what we want? Then life is absurd. That's the consequence. Life is absurd. If there's no God, then life is objectively meaningless. Now, how I hope you think with this, if you want to ponder it a little later on, what you're getting here is the description of our culture and therefore where it goes. If everything is absurd, what, how might that show up then in all of the spheres of life and all of culture? So you get the materialistic view of life. The human being is nothing more than a self-conscious matter. No wonder Planned Parenthood gets a free pass. Hey, you can take babies, kill them, chop them up, or cut them up in pieces and sell their parts, and you can get away with it and you get an applause. Who? From who? The secularists, the leftists. All right, secondly, no God, no wisdom. No God, no wisdom. Oh, there a lot goes, there's a lot that goes with this. You know, the celebration of youth. Ah, youth. It's a wonderful thing if it's in the right, used in the right way. But <clears throat> there is a reason why there are those in, in politics that go after the youth and they want them to, um, Bernie Sanders, he's got the youth that are just flocking to his, uh, his, uh, whatever, Meetings, just uh, pep rallies, and all that, and and why youth? Because they don't know anything yet. Older people don't. They're savvy to his socialism. They know what you see the ruin. But young people, oh, this is great—a free college education. Wow. Okay, no God, no free will, no punishment. Those who are they. Recoil. There's a recoiling from labeling evil as evil, and you you see that you don't you don't see a, a secular society. It the word evil is just no 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 no. We can't use that word. And if they do use it, they're stealing it. They're stealing it from a Judeo-Christian worldview. And you know, there are those who really have a, really a hostility and a rejection, a punishment of, of criminals. I read something interesting recently. You know, Clarence Darrow, you remember the man who argued in the Scopes trial? He was against all criminal punishment. And so you can see things happening in our judicial system, the shrinking of sentences and, the, and that, that kind of thing. And what is it in Norway? If you want to see what many people sing the praises of Scandinavian countries, but you just scratch, scratch the surface a little bit and see what's beneath, and it's, it's scary. And the, in Norway, remember the, the, uh, the young man who killed like, um, how many did he kill? Was it 70? It, it was 70 something people. Killed them, murdered them. He could be out of prison at the age of 53. Okay. Four, no God, no good, and evil. No good and evil. So reason can call us to goodness. 
I remember reading an article in the AJC. It's been a few months back. Some professor in a local university was, that was his whole argument. Reason is all we need. You get religion involved in the public arena. Whoa, you got to watch out for these religious people. They're scary. They'll come down on you. They'll kill you. So we just need reason. Yeah. Uh, how did you, how did that work out for, uh, uh Stalin? Mm-hmm. And the Soviet Union killed more, millions more people than Hitler killed. Murdered. How did that work out with Hitler? Ah, oh, there's the crowning achievement of a European civilization in the, in the 20th century. And Hitler and the Nazis? Just reason. No good. No. Five. No God, no beauty. No God, no beauty. The decline of beauty in music and art. And I, I can't comment on that further. We just have got to pedal along and go through this now. So here's what we're saying in this third chapter. Here it is. Chapter three. Cap- this is the header. This is the way I'm summarizing where this chapter goes. God is against every nation that rejects his authority and treats human life with contempt. You are on a rendezvous, an encounter with an encounter with God Almighty, a holy, righteous God. Nations invite the judgment of God by their arrogance and moral corruption. That's when you say, that's when you say it. You know, there is a final judgment of the nations. We know that from Scripture. That's coming. It is coming. And you have it laid out in the book of Revelation. And here's what Paul said <laughs> right in the, right in the teeth of the Gentile, um, apex of Gentile civilization in his day in Athens, speaking to the Harvard Yard people of his day. That's what he said in Acts 17, 30 and 31. He, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. Now that's when, that's when the media went crazy right there was it raised from the dead. But Paul was not afraid to declare that there was this coming judgment. Now, moving along. There are acts of divine judgment within the course of human history. You get my point. There is coming a judgment of all the nations. However, God judges through time. He brings judgment upon nations, on wicked nations, cities, civilizations. Examples. Sodom and Gomorrah. The Canaanites or the Amorites, that's Genesis 15 and 16. Syria, Philistia, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab. Go to chapters 1 and 2 of Amos and you'll see these nations around Israel that God zeroed in on. And why he said he was going to judge them. Gentile nations. Assyria took pride in her wealth, in her military strength. You see it in Zephaniah 2.15. All right, go ahead, take pride in it. You, you think you could strut across the stage of history with all your, with your, uh, your bragging and your arrogance. He brought them down. Babylon took pride in her military might, considered herself invincible. Read Habakkuk in the opening chapters. Chapter, chapter one. Chapter two. Edom was punished for her arrogance, Obadiah. Tyre was punished for her pride, Ezekiel 28. So the arrogance of the nations is expressed in a variety of ways. How? 
How does a nation express its, 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 you know, God's out to the margins and out of the picture and its arrogance? It's manifested by setting aside, attempting to set aside God's moral law. By greed, indifference to the poor and needy, the oppression of God's people. Israel in the Old Testament, the church in Israel today. So this is the way arrogance is expressed. And if you want a historical illustration, it's all the place. Well, I love history. You just see it's just commentary on what the Bible teaches and says. It's a great, if you're thinking about going into Christian work, I've recommended a meeting with a young man right now, and he's trying to determine what kind of major he wants to get, wants to go to seminary with a pastor. I said, well, leave it. Your major, your minor in history. You have to work through all the liberal professors. Oh, but some way or another, get it. Nations invite the judgment of God by deceptions and disregard for the truth. You see that in chapter 3 and verse 1. You see the word reference to lies. Assyria was just, it was a culture which had just accepted the use of a lie. It was a part of the way, they, it was pathological, so the way they function. It's like I were trying to relate to, um, I were trying to relate to the, uh, to China. And to any, any nations that do not have a Judeo-Christian, this is the scary thing. You want to be frightened? If you don't have a Judeo-Christian base and a sense of godness and unaccountability to God, if that's not in your national conscience to the degree that it's not, why do you need to tell the truth? The truth is what works best for you. Now, I, you, you got to do something to work with the nations, but... Why would the Chinese communists, for example, why would they want to tell you the truth? Why would Iran want to tell you the truth? Now, we try, you see, this gets into us into all kind of diplomatic problems because we still, we, uh, we're kind of living on the, as one has said, the perfume of an empty vase. And we have that Judeo-Christian her- that heritage, the Reformation heritage, where there is enough conscience, enough left, though it's, it's eroding, that we think, well, we're telling the truth, we expect you to tell the truth. We'll do this. If you do that, okay, you get it. So therefore, God and uh, nations invite judgment by deception, disregard for the truth. And Assyria built its power and its, by truce breaking. It'd make a, make a treaty and then, you know, it could kind of get the, it could get the, uh, those who've made the bargains with them thinking, hey, we're good. Remember, Israel got into that mess time and again. And she thought she could go to Assyria to get her protection from Syria. And from, well, that's just, that's like, uh, you know, the old story about the, the gingerbread man riding across the river on the back of the gay alligator, that kind of thing. Three, nations invite the judgment of God by their occult practices. See that in verse four, the reading? Sorcery. This is sorcery. It's the claim to have supernatural powers and knowledge, the ability to foretell the future, summon up evil spirits and charms and magical spells. I would expect this to be on the increase in our paganized, our culture that's being paganized. It's probably happening more than we realize. Egypt and Babylon were deep into this, deep into this. Sorcery, it was forbidden in Israel. God in no uncertain terms says, you don't go there, you don't do that. You don't try to call up the dead. You don't, you don't start playing with the dark side. It's dangerous. And a nation that turns to the occult for its decision making is soliciting the what? It's soliciting the council of demonic powers. 
And to the extent that a nation is, is salutes and is immersed in false religion, false, false religion, they're essentially involved, they're up to their ears in demonic powers. Read 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians in chapter uh, 10. Paul speaks to this. That they go to these idols, but you know what is behind the idol? Demonic powers. Four. Nations invite the judgment of God by their economic exploitation of other nations. Because of this, Assyria exerted a corrupting influence throughout the Near East. And Nahum compared Assyria to a ravaging lion and a seductive prostitute. Assyria's greed for material wealth, it led her into these violent materialistic policies. Because that's all they counted was the material wealth. Nations that attempt to control the wealth of other nations by military invasion or scheduling an encounter with the justice of God. We've got to be careful as a nation. But I will tell you, there are a lot of hungry nations out there who are advancing, want to advance for the benefit of their own wealth and power. Nations that depend on their economic strength to sustain them and turn themselves over to materialism are in for great fall. Five. Nations invite the judgment of God by their oppression of God's people. Verses 9 through 11. Chapter 1. That's already a foregone point. But God considers this as a personal attack against him. You make war against God's people. And you're making war against God. And God does not take that lightly. Obadiah. Joel. Zechariah. They emphasize the mistreatment of God's people. Israel. And that stirred up the anger of God against them. Even those nations that God in his providence raised up to discipline Israel, like Assyria and Babylon. And then God came because of the way in which they went about it and their defiance of God in the process, though they were instruments of his anger. He comes back and he gets them. God's in control of the nations. Never forget this. The Abrahamic covenant says that those who curse this will be cursed. And, well, that's a question that we'd like to discuss. Does this mean as long as Israel is in a place of covenant blessing? In my opinion, my judgment, that still Israel is still under the, the oversight of God to protect her as a people. He will not allow her to be annihilated. I don't care how many nuclear missiles would be aimed at little Israel. And you know what Iran's want. You know what they want to do. You know what the surrounding nations. It's, it's not a secret. They want to destroy Israel. They could put some missiles in. They could put nuclear missiles in there, accept the collateral, collateral damage, and be done with it. You know, they've, they've thought this thing through. But they haven't done it. I, mean, I, can, I can give you some speculation as to why. I know theologically why they've not done it. God's not, he's not going to allow how many are Jews there are about six million now back in the land. And he's not going to allow them to be wiped out as a people. Now, that's not to say that the nation couldn't fall. They could be dispersed again. But he's not going to allow them to be annihilated as a people. Okay, can't go any further with that. But I want to conclude now and get to this. Uh, I've got to see what I've done in my conclusion Okay, that's a conclusion. I can skip the one I've got here and go to this. All right, I've come to another friend of mine. Uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer has 
um, I, I happened to come across a, a message that he preached. It's been several weeks ago. And it was, um, uh, oh, it was a message, uh, I've forgotten which category it was. That's incidental to the point. But he began to speak about the issue with regard to the United States of America. And I just thought, well, those are pretty good nine points. And I've done some of this in other places and other studies, but I thought this was, it was fresh to me and I'm just putting it out there. This is, so I'm going to hitchhike on it and use them as my talking points. And this is the conclusion. And here it is. What about the fact that there is a war on Christianity in America? There is a war on Christianity. I'm convinced of that. You know, and what is, what is frightening is that this is from the top down. Our president, our government, people in high positions, our courts, senators, congressmen, some places, some governors, you, you name the varying places, is a war against Christianity. If you don't believe that, well, um, I don't know what you're, where you are. but So, therefore, what do we do? Now, I have to preface this. I'm going to get real political with you for just a moment. Um, you know what's happening. Anybody here from Iowa tonight? Okay. You say you've got to get back to Tuesday and get in the caucus. <laughs> and, well, um, I follow these things. It's just a little hobby of mine. And, you know, and you, you're aware of what's going on. We've got the Republicans and the Democrats. It has never been an election. I've, been, I've lived through a lot of elections. Uh, and I mean, actively, actually, I was, this will, this will really, uh, um, it may surprise you. In 1953, I was for Adelaide Stevenson. I mean, I was putting posters up on telephone poles. I was really into it. And everybody else in my class was going around, I like Ike. And, uh, but I saw the light and left that nonsense later on. And I voted, voted in every election since uh, Goldwater Johnson in 1964. I've never seen an election like this, never, where you've got, it looks like almost both parties are kind of imploding. And the attraction, the attraction would not be time-tested, experienced politicians, but people who come in from the outside who are promising the moon. And I say, beware of celebrities coming and promising the moon. Celebrities who think a mile wide and an inch deep promise the moon and there will be a price to pay for that. So we're in a turbulent time. And with the way I hear, I listen to radio, listen to it, coming NPR, coming home from the message uh, preaching over the way, and I heard some an interesting, very, in, for NPR, it was actually pretty good. And, um, and it was interviewing people while they were going to be voting for Trump. Christian people, I'm tipping my hand here. I'm not telling you who to vote for, see, so we don't have to lose our tax-exempt status, so chill out. <clears throat> but people were saying, why they were going to vote for Trump? And evangelicals, because it was based in the South Carolina and what was good, what's going on over there. I thought, I've known this, but this is not good. This is pretty ugly. This is bad. All right, I said all that to say this because... What is happening is that evangelicals, there are many who are talking about, they're angry. We, 
There's war against Christianity. What do we do? All right, let's get through this. One, our present situation is not new. Our present situation is not new. Oh, you just look through history. How many Christians have suffered and died for the faith and been ostracized and hated and mocked and ruined? Read your first century church history. First two, three centuries. It got a little better in the, the, with Constantine, the early part of the fourth century. Wow. And Christians suffering in Europe at, after the Reformation. Do you know there were more martyr, martyrs for the Christian faith after the Reformation than were in the first century? It's killed by Romans. That's some pretty nasty stuff happened. Secondly, standing for truth and righteousness can be lonely. Lonely. And <clears throat> you, uh, you take any of the prophets here, but Jeremiah stands out. He was, looked like about the, the last man standing. And it can be lonely. Um, we're paralyzed as a nation because of political correctness. And with the encroachment, the gradual, this is what is, uh, oh, and I hope you're accessing uh, Ed's class on um, on Islam. I hated to miss that this morning. You showed the video this morning. And you can, and it can be gotten, and if you want to find out, just check with Ed. And it's an eye-opener. There was an article in this morning's uh, paper uh, on the op-ed section, and it was one of those typical AJC. They go, and this is not an, I'm not dissing, and uh, what do we say? We love Muslim people. We love Muslim people, but hate the system. The system's corrupt. It's a death cult. But they're, I'm, Islamic people, they're my neighbors. I'm going to be kind to them. I want to help them. I want to, I'm going to be a good neighbor. I guarantee well, God is my helper. And speak to them, be polite to them, not treat them shabbily and wherever in your business dealings and meetings and so forth. And uh, the media, they never get this right, see. But I will say, tell you this, but what is, what is happening is that you can see the gradual seeping into our culture the, with the argument in this article in the morning's paper was presenting Islam as really kind of a pretty good system. It's just that there's some people who are really mis misrepresenting it, some terrorists who are giving them a bad reputation. All right, I'm, talk to Ed about this. He'll, he'll, he'll help you think through those things. Faithfulness is a, of a few is no guarantee that a nation is going to turn to God. When you go back into the Old Testament, you can find this uh, in the, the revival under Josiah. Wonderful revival. Remember, that's where they went into the temple and they found the book of the law and said, what do we have here? It's like saying, we found the Bible. <laughs> Whoa. And it just, the revival fires, they oh, we've got to re, reinstate the feast and get our worship protocol back. It was short-lived, short-lived. There is no guarantee that we can turn this country around. I hear this language. We're going to turn it around. I am wary of those who come at us, like I said earlier, whether it be a celebrity or a politician, 
who tell us that we're going to, we got to, we're going to turn it around. We're going to get America back. Back? Uh, think about that a little bit. What do you mean back? So, what does faithfulness look like while we are under judgment? That's a tough question. What's it look like when you're in your job sit place, you're, you're working through the culture, if you're in public school or private school or in business and ethical issues and the LBGTQ agenda, which is being imposed on bishops, to, uh, business from the top down, what uh, Delta, Coca-Cola, and just this, uh, this, uh, this totalitarian instinct that's out there in government and business. You will comply. How do we live as Christians in this? That's our task as a church. And let me just pause and say this for going through this. You may think, is there a relationship between this and a side-by-side conference? You'd better believe it. Because Christians have got to know, by this will all men know that you're my disciples. That you go and march on Washington by the millions and you change the laws. By this you know that all men will know that you're my disciples. All men, you love one another. The apologetic of love for the believers believers, and the advancement of the gospel. We mustn't get dislodged from that, thinking that there is ultimately some political solution to our problems. And number five, God values the human heart, not institutions and buildings. He values the human heart. Unless we be tempted to think this great civilization we built, God, you've got to keep it going. You've got to keep the banks going and not allow us. You wouldn't let us, you wouldn't let us become, go into another uh, recession and we get the dollar, the Dow just bottom drops out and this is the only way I think we Americans really would stand judgment if that kind of thing happened, where it just falls apart. We say, why would God? You remember when the Lord was queried by his disciples about the buildings they saw? They were up on the Mount of Olives, and they look over there, and they see it. And Jesus said, not one stone be left on top of another. You know what the Romans did? When the Romans came in 70 AD, they took every stone in that place, and they, you know what? They thought that there was gold hidden in those uh Buildings in those building stones, they just destroyed the whole thing, rolled them down into the um, in the Kidron Valley, and um, destroyed it. The disciples were just absolutely stunned. What? Because the Lord, the Lord values the human heart, not institutions and buildings. Six, six. When a nation is judged, the righteous suffer with the wicked. And I've, I've said some things here already about what if a na- nation goes down economically? It's going to hurt us all. Is it possible then the church has to regroup and reset its budget? I, this is, it's a baffling thing. You've got missionaries. You've got the Ritzes in Bosnia. What if, what if we go into a deep recession and we just suddenly the money doesn't come in? We have missionaries out there. They're supported. They have to be supported. Lord, oh Lord. I, there's a response to that. But I'm just saying... That when a nation is judged, the righteous suffer with the wicked. In a lot of other ways too, not just economically. Just the devaluation of human life and all that that creates. Seven, God uses evil nations to judge his own people. He uses evil nations to judge his own people. Habakkuk is a classic example of this where God told Habakkuk that 
You know, Habakkuk was going to the Lord with his plaint, with his cry. Oh, Lord, this, we're breaking your covenant left and right. We're just violating it. We're in your face. And, oh, he's just talking. And God comes back and says, I'm doing a work. And if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. Well, tell me. And then he had to, oh, no. God says, I'm raising up mighty Babylon to come in and take you down. Oh, what? Oh, what would that be like? Coming in with its co-culture of idolatry. You know, I'm only speculating at this point, but we're worrying about the, you know, the massive entrance of, of, of people coming in from other nations and immigration. Our nation's built on immigration. But you know, one way God could bring us down, he could bring, he could bring people in under our, we are freedom loving people. We believe in liberty and in receiving refugees. And I'm not arguing against that, but that, you know, what could happen is that because they come into a, a moral, a, a culture that's at war with God and has erased him and the, the moral standards are, are going, disappearing and that all religions are the same. Uh, that kind of thinking, truth is your your own construct. You build it, and so you get people coming, whether it be Islam, Hindu, whatever. So they come in with their cultural values, their religious system. Do you think they may be different from way this nation was uh, found, what it was founded upon? Oh yeah, could that have? Could Sharia and the influence of Sharia could that begin to undermine some of our time-honored laws, principles, statutes? In the judiciary, could it? Could it? Could God use that as a mean of, means of bringing us down? I'll leave that with you. Number eight. Number eight. God gives His people promises to live by within a pagan culture. Within a pagan culture. Oh, memorize Romans eight. I had it almost memorized, and I got lazy and didn't finish it. Now I'm going back and trying to put it together. I just think I want. I'd love to be able to die with Romans 8 on my lips. If I could just repeat it right before I died. (laughs) Romans 8, all the promises. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or perilous sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. I'm convinced. Well, I'm going to go through the whole. Memorize. Take encouragement from God's promises. He'll make us strong. He'll give you joy. You're not, not I'm talking to be grim. Joy, zealous for God, seeking the lost. Nine, we must not be passive. We have work to do. We must not be passive. We have work to do. And so we don't, we don't go in a bunker. We don't go off and, you know, get into this mode where it's like, uh, uh, trying to find a safe cave somewhere uh, and retreat and move away from society. But, Lord, stir us up and make us active for you.